Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into true crime cases through the lens of a trained investigator and former prosecutor turned judge. If you are sensitive to expletives, anatomical descriptions, and accurate descriptions of true crime scenes, this podcast may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Megan. And this episode's going to look a little bit different. Yeah. So while I was gone, uh, Charnel did an interview with a, a lovely lady, Amanda Quick. Mm-hmm. And we're going to plug it right here. Amanda has a book coming out called The Sex Trafficker's Wife. It's actually going to be released on January 10th, I believe. Yep. So you guys should all go check it out. I can assure you that this interview um, that Charnel conducted with Amanda, she gives a great overview, but she doesn't give you so many of the juicy details. You're going to want to to read this book and, yep. and get those details. And January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. Great. So, Let everybody know that. It yep. is. So if you want any additional information too, there are a number of websites. So go in, look up uh, Human Trafficking Awareness Month um, for January. You're going to get a whole ton of links. Um, and it's just going to give you information on what human trafficking is. You know, when we had talked to Amanda before, because this is the second time that we chatted with her, yes. um, you did this interview. But when we had talked with her before, it was really interesting. And in even she indicated at the time that this was happening that she wasn't 100% aware, and I don't think the general public is, is of what human trafficking is. Because you think of human trafficking as, you know, trafficking people over borders, right? Right. Out of the country. Which is exactly what she thought at first. Right. And you also think with um, sex trafficking the same, like you're kidnapping uh, girls or you're kidnapping boys and you're Mm -hmm. performing sex acts on them. It can be as simple as becoming involved in an online relationship, um, often with minors. And then when the inappropriate um, criminal sexual uh, type events start occurring, that's that's human sex trafficking, yep. people. Um, it's it's one of the definitions. So go look it up and make yourself aware. I'm really excited to hear this interview with Amanda. It was a wonderful interview. Of course, we missed having you. I'm yeah, the, I'm the sorry. first time around, you guys will remember the first time around, we did this interview and it didn't record because we did not do our gree gree shaking right. beforehand. Oh, shall we do that now? Well, I did do it during did? the interview we'll too. Again. I explained it to Amanda when I did this interview <laughs> also. So the reason that Amanda wants her story to be heard is because, and interestingly enough, Megan, when they were doing um, comparables for her book, when her publisher was doing these, they couldn't find any. Really? Because she is one of the first people to tell the story from the wife's perspective. Right. There are not, I mean, many, she she agreed with this too. We kind of talked about it during the interview, but many feel, I think, too ashamed to, to come forward and talk about that. And she doesn't want people to feel alone. If you, ha- you know, we don't often tell the story from the perpetrator's family's perspective. Correct. Right? In fact, we can be judgy about it. I yeah. know yep. that our listeners, I myself have said, how could she not know? Yes. How could this person not know their yes. husband was a murderer, you know, butchering people in garages and such. Yep. Sometimes they don't. They don't. Yep. And Amanda absolutely did not. And she wants anyone out there who has been in the same position as her, not even necessarily with their husband being convicted of sex trafficking, but just any crime, she wants them to know that you're not alone. 
and that there are there are people out there that are willing to talk with you and help you and you don't have to go into a scary dark place by yourself and it's just it's a wonderful um a wonderful thing that she's doing because she's not only bringing awareness to sex trafficking but also helping the victims of the perpetrator's family understand you know helping the world kind of understand exactly the kind of manipulation that happens and how this can happen so easily without their families knowing and uh it's it's a story about her journey that way. She's so, a survivor. It's a survival is. story. She and if is. you like those, yep. um, and, and most of us do, it's, it ends well for her. Yes. And my, my favorite, because she made sure of that. She's resilient. Sure. She is. And, um, my favorite part is when she told me that, and I think this was off air, that the only name in the book that's not changed is the perpetrators. That's lovely. Yes. Yep. That's lovely. So, and we, she did not say his name in the interview. Okay. But it is absolutely in the book because everything that she uses in the book about him is public record. Fantastic. Yep. Even their well, divorce situations. Yeah. So, so again, this is this is some good content. Yep. And we hope that you enjoy the episode. Yes. We're just going to play it for him now, right? Yep. We sure are. And, you know, give us some feedback. If you like the interview style, you know, maybe we will reach out for more interviews and just shake it up every once in a while with that as well. So absolutely. I hope you guys enjoy listening to Amanda's story. Take Me care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So I am here with Amanda Quick and just a couple of days from your book release, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. And so this, obviously we are a um, true crime podcast, but in your story absolutely fits in with that. But you have a, a spiritual journey that you embarked on because of this as well, correct? That's correct. Yes. When I looked on your website, I... I thought I was kind of just looking for information about your book and your story that way, and then went down a whole nother rabbit hole, which was amazing. So we'll get to all of that. But um, before we kind of get started, I have to do something that we didn't do last time. And I am, a Megan and I are convinced that the reason that nothing recorded last time, forgot to do our typical um, shaking of our crystals. Oh we my have goodness. Cry- yes, we have crystals in this little kangaroo sack. And I'm I'm here to tell you this is a genuine kangaroo scrotum sack that was sent to us by a Australian listener. He is amazing. His name is Jason. And so it's become like this tradition. Then somebody sent us crystals that we put in it. And it's become a tradition that we shake it before each episode. And we didn't do that the first time that we recorded. And we are convinced that that was the universe saying, you know, you did not use your typical ritual. And so that's why it didn't work out. So my audience will be happy to know that we remembered. I remembered this time and it's going to be okay. This is the episode that we told you all about that was amazing um, back in November. We did a two-hour interview and then uh, getting to know you and whatnot and hearing your story. And then it just somehow our equipment malfunctioned for whatever divine purpose. So everything happens for a reason. But so here we are in, I don't know, for probably the millionth time, would you like to tell an audience your amazing story? And then we will, I would love to hear about what inspired you to write your book and, uh, you know, that journey as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the story begins back in 2016. In April of 2016, I was a full-time stay-at-home mom. I had three kids. They were one, four, and five, so fairly young. I'd been staying home their whole babyhood, and my husband at the time worked to support us. He worked really long hours. 
He worked, he traveled for his job quite a, quite a lot. And, you know, we're a very traditional American household, mm-hmm. you know, stay at home mom, got man, man worked. We were, at, we were upper middle class. We had, we had a pretty comfortable living and, you know, I, I felt like, you know, I wanted to be closer with my husband, but we had young kids and he traveled a lot. And so things weren't yeah. perfect, but they weren't bad. And one day he doesn't come home. He doesn't come home from work. And he was already, I already expected him to be later that day, but you know, it got to be nine to 10 and 10 o'clock. And I got one message from him asking if there was like food or leftovers. I said, yeah, yeah. And I expected him home in like 10 minutes. And then hours went by and I truly didn't know what to think. I knew something was wrong because that was beyond normal. And, but at the same time, he often stopped responding to me and I said, screw it. I'm going to bed and he'll show up when he shows up. I figured he went back to work or he got distracted or something. Two o'clock in the morning, still no husband. You know, I woke up to nurse the baby and realized he still wasn't home. And I called the hospitals because that was really beyond normal. This wasn't usual for him. Yeah. You know, he was late. Yes, but not this. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't, they didn't have him. They didn't have any John Doe's, anything like that. And then five o'clock in the morning, I got the idea to call non-emergency dispatch because, you know, the internet tells you, you have to wait 24 hours before you can report somebody missing, but it's like, maybe they they have some other idea. So I called non-emergency dispatch and the lady says, well, let me transfer you over to the jail. See if he's there. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll call you right back. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I like he's think. not in the jail. <laughs> he's not there. That's ridiculous. And the shock of my life when the person on the jail answers and says, oh, yeah, we have him. What? On what charge? Attempted human trafficking with a $250,000 bond. Oh, wow. Just shock of my freaking life. Like, yeah. what? <laughs> you know, repeat, repeating, like, you sure? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Do you have this guy's name right? Like, are we sh- are we talking about the same person? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we lived in a small Colorado town. Like, it made no sense to me. I, you know, I didn't even know what human trafficking meant. And you know, sure. in my mind, I went shipping containers and borders and all. Like, huh? Right. Right. Like taking people across um, the border. Yeah, okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. Like stealing people, kind mm-hmm. of. A thing. Like that's that's where my mind went, and I was like, that makes no sense. I sure. Don't, I don't understand. And, but at the same time, it was like, my initial reaction was, well, I have to help because that's not, something is wrong. It wasn't, oh my God, my, my husband is guilty of these horrible things. It was something is wrong and I have to help him because he needs my help. I think that that's a majority of people's very natural reactions because you know what you know of your husband, right? We don't know what we don't know. (laughs) And so my initial response was I called bail bondsmen, I called lawyers. I was like, okay, I'm on a mission. I got to figure this out. I got to get him some help. And part of me wasn't even totally sure that he was actually in jail and that somebody didn't like steal his wallet or something. But I was still like operating with, well, we got to go figure this out. And so the bail bondsman and the first lawyer I spoke to said it was very likely that his bond was going to get reduced. So hang tight. And the bail bondsman actually agreed to go check on him that morning. And I was like, oh, please do. Let's make sure he's actually him. And we tried to go visit him in jail. You can't just walk into jail and try to visit somebody. I didn't know that. Right. Yeah. Anything to do with the court system. Um, and but I did run into the bail bondsman who confirmed, in fact, that was my husband. And I was okay. like, well, okay, at least he's not dead. Like that's 
you know, where I was right. at. Right. Because at this time, point in time, you don't want him there. <laughs> no, but the alternative isn't very good either. So yeah, yeah. we found him. Um, and then it was actually in the lawyer's office that next morning that he finally called me. And he called me and said, this is the first time they let me call you. They wouldn't let me call you all night. And I was under the impression still, like, I was like, don't say anything. I don't know what they're recording or what. Just I know where you are. I'm in a lawyer's office. Like, we're getting help. That's that's where I was at. And I paid a I paid a lawyer a retainer so that they could talk to him on a non-emergency line. And, you know, I'm, at this point, his his mom is with me, too. And Everett, we're all like, this isn't him. This doesn't make any sense. Something else is wrong. You know, she was sure. all kinds of crazy theories out there. And I was just like, I don't I don't understand. So the lawyer calls him and I get a snippet of information at this point. And he kind of reads me over his notes and says, you know, there was a there was an ad that he responded to and he didn't think any of it was real. He thought it was a setup. And 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 I was like, huh, <laughs> like what? Like, I didn't I didn't understand what he was saying. And I was like, OK, right. so like what what ad is my husband responding yeah. to? Like an ad for what? I don't get yeah. it. Like, I really was dense here. Yeah. Um, but the lawyer is trying very hard to just brush over it because he doesn't want me to just basically stop paying for it all. And because I had to fork over the money for the lawyer, even though he I basically had to say, my husband is your client. You don't have to tell me anything. I'm 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 also the one who just handed him a check. Right. <laughs> oh, that is a bad spot for him to be in. <laughs> right. So he's like reading over this like, uh, okay. Um, and I leave going, okay, so this isn't just going to vanish. This isn't just some crazy mistake, but I still don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, we go to the bond hearing. And so he's still, he's still in jail. We go to the bond hearing because we're told that they're going to reduce his bond and we should, we should hang tight. And the, the, when we, when we go there, they have, we realize there's multiple defendants. There's, there's like four or five men in orange, ankle shackled, wrist shackled, everything. There's the whole place is swarming with federal agents. Ooh. And I'm like, whoa, what, this is a serious thing. Um, you know, my husband looks like shit, just totally disheveled. Looks like he hasn't showered in three days, you know, and he kind of sees us and sort of is, acknowledges us, but definitely not doing well. And then we start to get a little bit more information. We realize, you know, this is clearly a sting operation. There's more than one defendant there. Um, one of the defendants crossed borders. We were right on the line from New Mexico and Colorado, and they, he drove up to, and crossed borders, and that immediately went to federal court. Oh. Um, another defendant, they did reduce the bond, like everybody said. And so I was like, okay, this is maybe this is good news. And then in my husband's case, they actually said they were – intending on charging him with more. They were going to go from attempted human trafficking to completed human trafficking. And so they were asking not to reduce his bond. Oh, everybody freaking out and like, you know, and the lawyers all went up to the bench. Even we didn't even get to hear the rest of the information, but they ended up not reducing his bond. And I'm like, what, what on, how can this even get worse now? Totally freaking out. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm still under the assumption that something else is going on. My husband needs help. This isn't him. This is like somehow he's caught up in something. And and you don't know these other people that are in, you know, having their hearings too, that were a part of this sting, right? No, and none of them look like, I mean, they all, 
you know, they look more like predators than what I would consider my like, <laughs> sure. Like, you know, I, I, I like that you said that. that because it really does show how we can't stereotype these things. And that, um, that, that was it. when I started as a CPS worker, I really thought that I knew in my mind what the first sexual predators were going to be that I had to deal with. And I can tell you only once in my entire time in CPS did a pedophile actually match the stereotypical description of a pedophile. <laughs> the right. rest of the time, they looked like everyday normal human beings that walk that you see in Walmart every day or, you know, out to dinner. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, but, you know, in my head, I'm you know, profiling all these other people. Yeah. And in and, and, and that even makes it even more confusing for you, I would think, too. Like, how is he lumped in w- right. with all of these other characters? Yeah. Exactly. This exactly. must be a mistake. There's something. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know what, what happened here. So um, we, had an, we had money and investment. So I cashed a bunch out and decided mm-hmm. I was going to go bail him out because <laughs> um, I needed I needed to, you know, he needed to get the hell out of there. He didn't belong there was really right. where I was at. Yep. And so I was like, okay, whatever. I'm going to go get you out. So I went and bailed him out. And, um, my, you know, he, he comes out, he's disheveled in the same clothes he'd worn three days ago. He's a mess. You know, he's, he gets in the car, he breaks down, starts crying, get me the hell out of here. Like just, okay. And I start driving and I'm just focused (laughs) on like giving him some space, but also like you need to tell me what's happening here. Right. Like you need to fill in some gaps here because I'm very, I'm three days now very confused. Yeah. And uh, he starts talking and he starts telling me that kind of the same thing the lawyer did. He says, you know, there was an ad I responded to and I didn't think any of of it was real and they wouldn't let me call you and I'm so stupid. And he just kept like, I was like, huh? Again, what? An ad for what? An ad for what? Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, for escorts huh? Oh, shit. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, he says, and I'm like, how long has that been going on? And he goes, oh, like forever. Just super flippant about it. Like, what? So here you are, just bailed this man out of jail and you find out that he, your husband, has been, is just flippantly telling you yeah, how much he's been cheating on you. Basically. he's And I was mm-hmm. like, how long has this been going on? For Like forever. Since, I, since he was like 20. Now he's, you know, almost 40 at this point gracious and, and i'm like what what like yeah. except my don't at this point i'm in so much shock after everything that's been happened i don't even have an emotional response sure like i don't i have no ability at this point to have an emotional response i just sort of like try to take in the information but i still can't feel it no and then he starts going on and on about how scared he is and that you know he 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 didn't think any of it was real and, he, you know, when they offered kids that, you know, he, he just felt like he had to report it, but he was scared to. When they offered about- kids. See, that's this. Yeah. This is the piece. My listeners don't know anything about your story because uh, I haven't prefaced this at all f- for them. So he was busted trying to buy children. Correct. Which explains why he was breezing over the fact yeah. that he buys escorts all the time. And you shouldn't be upset about that because they're actually accusing me of buying children. Exactly. Oh, so he's upset in his mind that he's being accused of this horrible thing when he was just doing this other not so good thing. 
Oh, right, right. Like, like I'm a shitty person, but I'm not that shitty of a person is essentially well, what he's trying to tell you. And, and he truly believed for a long while that he was helping the escorts because he was paying them. And he was <laughs> Oh, honey. No, 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 no. That's what yeah. narcissists say. Yeah. Yes. So I didn't know any of that. Really. Of course I'm not. Right, right. But he's going on and then he starts being like, should I run? Should I, you know, we'll have to forfeit the money. But, you know. You guys, you know, he just keeps going on. And I'm like, oh, no. You have three small children. You're going to go on the run. Right. And I'm I'm like, just calm down. Like, Mm -hmm. calm down. You know, we're going to figure this out. Like, if that if you're not guilty of that, we will figure this out. Like, you know, and and my protective mechanisms still come out with a we'll get through this. We'll figure this out because. On one hand, I can't even wrap my mind around the fact that my husband's admitting to cheating on me with escorts, let alone being a predator. And so he's admitting to this and I'm like, oh, okay, but you're still in trouble for a hell of a lot more because a human trafficking charge is an indeterminate to life sentence. Mm -hmm. And like if if all you've been doing is is seeing prostitutes, that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And yet that's where his he's going. And so I'm like, we'll figure this out. We'll get through it. I don't know what that looks like yet. But no, you're in survival mode, which doesn't process everything that it, it should. No, it really doesn't. It's always it's one foot in front of the other. Yep. Um, and so, so then, uh, you know, we start the criminal proceeding stuff, and I think all of this is going to be fast, and we're going to be in court all the time. But I have no idea how any of this stuff works. Oh, slowest freaking process ever. It is. It's <laughs> awful. It is. But he wasn't arraigned until ten days later. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, you know, the official charge. And by then they had done a legal review of the case. And so the, all the legal teams had decided that they actually couldn't charge them with human trafficking. They could only charge them with solicitation of a minor. And okay. I don't know the exact differences between them, but. Probably because he didn't actually take possession of the minors. It was a sting operation. So there, there wasn't any children to exactly. actually. Exactly actually take possession of. Right, right, right. Which, I mean, it makes it even, I I feel like when you're going to set up a sting operation, like, don't you want to get them, you know, like really get them, not just slap on the wrist, get them. But I'm not the FBI or police. Exactly. Exactly. And so they've done a legal review of the case. They reduced the charges. So he was only charged with solicitation of a minor and they still actually didn't reduce his bond at that point. But um, and this piece is in my book and we don't have to talk about it in great detail, but the yep. other big thing that happened to me is the morning that I got ready to get in the, get ready for the arraignment. I also found out I was pregnant. Oh gosh. With my would be fourth child. Mm-hmm. So I've added another set of trauma on top of all of this because. Right. And things to consider. And what the hell am I going to do with this? Yep. yep. And so just from a state of mind perspective, I'm yep. a disaster. Um, I immediately don't think I can keep the baby, even though that's not something I had ever considered before in my sure. life. But well, you've never been in this position before in your life, to be like, fair to you. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, I'm going through an intense amount of turmoil in myself with mm-hmm. all of that. Um, I go to the arraignment. I It's like five minutes long or something. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. You know, and then they and then they schedule another status hearing for another six weeks. And I'm like, oh, this is going to take forever. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know I tell my husband what's going on I tell him that I don't think I can keep this and but I'm also 
really in, in total, I'm pulling myself apart in so many ways. And I feel like I'm supposed to stay and support my husband because I also have a ton of trauma from my own dad not being in my life when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I had this huge belief that kids deserve to have both parents and that I needed to do everything possible to make sure that happened. And that he would be better off if I stayed and supported him because he wasn't this monster. He just had some addiction issues that we needed to address, but he was admitting to him. He was facing them. He kept, he's like, this is going to be my rock bottom. I'm going to get through this. We're going to get through this. We're going to be stronger and better. And I really wanted to believe all of that. Sure. And so I just kind of continued to proceed as though, you know, that's, that's what I have to do. And mm-hmm. now at this point on bond, he's not allowed access to the kids at all. He's not allowed to be home. And my kids also start to struggle. They start, where's daddy? He traveled a lot, but he was never gone for very long. Right. Right. And so it was like, when is daddy coming home? Especially my oldest who was six at that time. And, you know, it was like, I didn't even know what to say. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, and so his, the, his lawyers thought that if you know, I supported it that we could get supervised visitation established for the, for the kids. And she was right. And the next status hearing, we asked for supervised visitation. And so we, we started paying a supervisor like $60 an hour to come to the home mm-hmm. and supervise interaction. And this period of time is probably, you know, it's, it was really interesting in the, such a polarizing way because it was so horrible on so many levels, but at the same time, this was the only time the kids ever really got that focused attention from him. He would come over oh, wow. with new toys, new games. It would be like two hour daddy play date. Mm-hmm. They loved it because he was, you know, he worked long hours. He was hardly ever around before. And this was like the focused time with him. And on some level, he was giving me attention in a way that he never had before either. And so like he wasn't allowed in the home and he wasn't allowed to be with us, but it was like we had this this opportunity, we thought, in a sense, to have the family we never had before. Mm-hmm. And I still believed he was he was a good person that was just needing to deal with some things. And and so it was like, is this going to bring us together in some other way? And, you know, one of the hardest parts for me still today to talk about about this whole thing is really what our relationship looked like at that point, because I believed he was he was innocent of what they were charging him for. And I was yeah, I was upset about the cheating, but all of a sudden my husband was the person that I'd always wanted him to be. He was the, the, the man and the father that I always wanted. He was giving all of us the attention that we, you know, deserved in a lot of ways. And our relationship really changed. And we almost had like a second honeymoon of sorts because we weren't allowed to be together. That's what we wanted. And I would share visitors to go spend time with him. And, you know, we would, we would dream of what our life was going to look like after this was all over and that we would, you know, refocus on what really mattered in our lives and all of this stuff. And, you know, and at the same time, at this point, this, the articles were out in the paper and it was public knowledge. And so I was also really, really isolated from anybody else in the outside world. Sure. Anybody else who reached out to me or wanted to bring food or they wanted information. They wanted me to tell them what was going on with the case. They wanted the details. Yeah. I didn't tell them anything. Right. Right. And you, at this point in time, and I think that it's important for people to understand um, that at at this point in time in cases like this, you only have the information that the the accused is giving you, right? So there are so many times where I hear people say like, oh, well, I would have done this or I would have done that. You don't know what you would have done because you don't know what information you would have had. 
I think that it's just an important thing for people to remember and to keep in the back of their mind as you, not only you tell your story, but as they read other. So yes, I just, I just think that it, it is very important because it's not like you have a case file in front of you. It's not like, you know, with as long as the court system takes, there are so many families that literally spend two years or more defending their loved one. And then they go to trial and they sit through a trial and their minds are blown when they hear the truth of what the evidence is that comes against them. So I just, I, I love that you're telling your story for my audience, but, and for the world, but so much this, this shows, you know, you've got what he's telling you and you yeah. want to believe everything that he's telling you. And he's showing you now that he could be a better mm-hmm. husband. And exactly. I, I can only imagine how in a small way that must've felt really wonderful. Exactly. And you know, I mean, when the first articles in the paper came out, the art, the paper knew more than I did. Yes. And, you know, the paper had the details of, you know, the the initial ad. And I didn't have that even. Mm-hmm. The paper knew that it was an 11 and 14 year old that they offered. I didn't oh, know wow. Because the, the paper the- can FOIA the, uh, the arrest warrants and things like exactly. that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, you and can so- too, but you probably didn't know to do that. You don't know how to do that, right? No, no right do that of course not and you don't even think to you don't investigate you go well I'm gonna go get the answer from the source you don't and so and how often has the media exaggerated and really tainted their own reputation right so over and over and over again and Mm -hmm. he had an answer for all of it he was like I didn't think any of it was real and I had to find out if it was real so that I would report it and so Mm, that manipulation he, he was basically, and actually it was his sister who gave this analogy, that it's like if you were a drug dealer and they offered a rare tiger as a trade and you can't go report them for, you know, the the animal stuff because you're a, you know, Coke dealer or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like that's basically the analogy that she was giving. So that to justify why he couldn't just report it or drop it or anything because he he couldn't let it go if it was really kids he really had to find out so that they could you know actually be reported and and, and you know arrested so his family was helping him justify his actions and falling under the manipulation as well they absolutely were his mom kept going over and over again that he's a lot of things but he's not this and the kids need him especially you know my oldest who's slightly autistic really needs him and you know, and everybody would talk about how much he hyper-focused on things and how he much liked to solve puzzles and to justify that it would make sense that he would do something like that just to find out so that he could then report it. Like everybody in his immediate circle was supportive. It was all the outside world that had a bunch of judgments. And so I felt totally isolated. There was no, anybody who I would talk to would throw judgments at me. And so all I could do was push out all of the outside world. And I shut down social media. I disconnected literally everything. Mm-hmm. I felt my own family. I was like, they don't understand. They just, my mom suggested I'm, I actually leave the state and go move closer to my sister. And I was like, how dare you? You took my father away. I'm not going to take my kid's father mm-hmm. away. Like, I was all over that. And, and so the only safe person to talk to was my husband himself. Mm-hmm. The only person who could possibly understand what I was going through was the person who caused the trauma. And so it only deepened my trauma bond with him, essentially. Oh, definitely. So that that he was my only safe, safe haven. And, you know, 
he had been the one financially supporting us and yes, he had lost his job. And so people are like, well, but he lost his job and you paid all this money. Why didn't you just take the money and leave? Like they, you, people don't understand how deeply tied you get to somebody else when you go through trauma with them. Right. And it's not just a financial safety. It's, it's your entire identity yep. that's wrapped into that. And so that's where, you know, that's where I was through the criminal trial. And then he was evaluated for probation and his lawyer, the lawyers that we ended up hiring were out of Denver and they were like the shark of the, the, the people to hire for this type of case. And they sent him to very specific counselors and therapists, very specific evaluators for probation. Like they very much knew the, everybody in the state and who was the best one to go to. And so he went to this evaluator out of Pueblo and she, they do a bunch of tests to like see what they're primarily attracted to and read a bunch of history and all that. And his evaluation probation, according to the lawyers was very good. But when I, I asked to read it, then there was new information again that I didn't have. And I learned that my husband not only was attracted to women, but that he had also had relations with men as well, Mm -hmm. which was news to me. Not that I give any, I don't care about. Right. No, but I mean, he hadn't been transparent with you about that. Yeah. It was another thing he was keeping from me. And yeah. really what I wouldn't admit to myself at the time is I had three boys. And so I thought there was a level of safety there, but there wasn't. Yes. Okay. Yep. Um, and so, but everybody else was saying this was good. He was that primarily he was attracted to postpubescent women and that he had a bunch of anxiety and depression, but that he had a support system and he was a good candidate for probation. That was basically the gist of the report. And when after all of that was through, we got a plea deal offer. And what I later learned is most of these things get put out and they never really go anywhere. And he was offered only probation, four years of probation for pleading guilty to attempted solicitation of a minor. Wow. Program list on the sex offender registry, but no jail time. Even his lawyer was actually surprised. His lawyer thought he would get at least a few months. Yeah. But um, they didn't even offer, they didn't even do that. And so he was like, I have to take this. This yeah. is like. Oh, uh, yeah. This is a golden deal. You never I, have. I mean, I, I know. Like, wow. But if you're innocent, why aren't you going to fight it? Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's where I was at still. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. he would say, like, well, I started to compose an email or I was Googling how to how to report it or whatever. And I was like, if there's evidence that proves that you're innocent, why wouldn't you fight it? Why would you ever plead guilty to something like this? Right. And his his lawyers were like. You know, the evidence is stacked against him and nobody would ever believe a story like that. And so he's, he's, he had to take the and deal. Were they telling you at the time what the evidence is that's against him? I never spoke to the lawyers. I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't my, the lawyers didn't, they, they can't. Really. Yeah, right. You're not their client. Mm-hmm. I'm not their client. And I never went to a meeting with him. I had three children at home. Yeah. Right. And so right. I never went with to hear all of it. And I don't even know if I would be allowed to if I had. And so it was an easy separation. I only heard through him what they were saying. Mm-hmm. And so, and the other thing that happened in the state of Colorado is a few years before that, there had been a new precedent sent with the Supreme Court. And the, the, the new precedent was that a sex offense no longer removes your right to parent. It doesn't automatically negate that. And the precedent basically meant that it, the moment he pled guilty to attempted solicitation of the minor, he actually gained back his parenting rights. Yes. It's like that in Michigan now as well. Yeah. And so the the Supreme Court ruling essentially meant that if he pled guilty, he moved oh. back in. Yeah. 
And at the time, we were all ecstatic. Like, of oh, course. I don't have to do this on my own anymore. And it's fantastic and great. And so he moved back into the house. And I thought, okay, our life can get back to some version of normal now. And um, he got an offer actually to go to work with somebody he had previously known. It was a different different company, but I thought this would be good for him. He'll have something to do. But his anxiety and depression was off off the chart. He couldn't focus on anything. He couldn't do anything. He was already being medicated um, for depression, but it wasn't helping. And I started to realize pretty quickly that I needed to go back to work. I had been out of work for six years. It was, you know, the the years were just getting longer at this point. And so I needed to, I wouldn't be able to make nearly the money he had made. I'd be lucky to even make half as what he used to make, but I needed to start. I needed mm-hmm. to not let that bigger employment gap get bigger. And so I started to look for work. My youngest was now two. So at least I felt better about leaving. And I realized my husband could be home if he wasn't going to go back to work. He wasn't allowed around other children as a sex offender on probation. They have a lot of restrictions, yes. but he was allowed to be around his own. And so I was still going to have to do pickups and drop-offs with the, with the older kids, any extracurriculars I still would have to oh, do. Yeah. Like he couldn't go to schools, but he could go to the grocery store and he could watch the kids when they were home. And so that's just what's going to ha- be how it is. And so I started looking for work and I actually found something pretty quickly. And in April of 2017, I went back to work full time. And at first it was terrifying because I thought that people were going to connect me to what had, they had read in a paper the year ago and that they sure. were going to, even my last name would somehow get connected and think that it was about me. And so I, I didn't tell anybody anything about my life. Like they knew I had a husband and children, but I didn't even say his name. I didn't want anybody to know who I was in reference to anything. And I was, it was like, all of a sudden I created two bubbles I had my home life and I had my work life and they, yeah. And for a little while that worked okay. And I was doing really good at work. I was, I ended up actually getting promoted more than just a mom and a wife again. Yeah. And that was really good for me. Started to make things at home harder because all of a sudden my worlds couldn't intersect. And I started right. to like, I started to actually start to feel the fact that my husband had admitted to cheating on me so many times throughout. Well, now things have calmed down enough, right? That you can process fully and just move, try to move on. And you're like, wait, there's this huge elephant. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And I started to, it started to feel like there was ghosts in the room with us. Mm -hmm. It started to feel like every time he would look at me in a, in a sexual way was, oh, that's how you looked at them. Sure. I couldn't. I no longer wanted to be close to him. I no longer wanted anything to do with him. I would come home after work and I would have to drink half a bottle of wine to even look at him. Oh, and yeah. I was just like- Only half? Was- I'm proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> but like, that's where I was. Like, I couldn't, and and I could, I could feel myself just repelling him. And at the same time, this idea that I was going to blow up my family after I just fought like hell to keep it together- I took all of that on me, myself. Oh. I was going to cause this problem. I was the, the one who would make those decisions. And I couldn't, I couldn't fathom that either. And so I just buried it all. And eventually I found myself attracted to a coworker because that's what happens. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you've literally been <laughs> repelling your energy against your, from your husband. Yeah. You're human. <laughs> and I found myself and then I'm like, 
really, Amanda, you're going to go do this? And I, decided, <laughs> I decided that I wasn't going to cheat on him. I wasn't going to lie. I wasn't going to, you know, I knew what that was, what that was like. So I was going to be honest. I was going to tell him the truth and whatever needed to happen was going to happen. And so I did. And he was upset at first. And then he pretty quickly shifted to, well, we'll stay together and you can just go date. You just, he basically was like, you just go get it out of your system. It's fine. Because I mean, really, he doesn't have a whole lot of uh, uh, credence to stand on here when he's no. like, yeah, I've been doing this since I was 20. So exactly. And Ugh. so at the same time, you know, so he's like, oh, we'll just stay together for the boys here. I'll move down. He moved bedrooms. And, you know, on one level, I was sort of surprised because I thought this was going to be like a blow up of everything. And on the other sure. hand, I was like, OK, we don't maybe I don't have to blow everything up. Maybe I can just go live my life in a different way. And, um, you know, dating was fun and exciting. And I like got to laugh and have fun again in a way that, it, that I hadn't had in years. Because sure. I had three kids back to back and, and then this whole thing. And, and you didn't have this negative no. feeling with these other people, you know, this other person or anything. I mean, I bet that felt amazing. <laughs> it did. It was like, there was no more ghosts in the, in the room. And, and yeah. you know, he, he adored me and wanted to have, you know, do things so that, you know, I would have fun. We went to music shows and road trips and different things. And, and it was like, oh, okay, I, life can be more, more again. Yeah. But it was also super messy because I was living with my husband who was on probation as a sex offender. We had three young children <laughs> together. My boyfriend was a coworker. Like it was really messy. Yeah. I can, <laughs> and, I, I can see. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I um, got promoted and was going to be his boss. And I went, oh, okay, this is messy enough. Like, and I realized that I needed to take a step back and I needed to focus on my family. I needed to figure out what I was doing with my life. And so mm -hmm. I broke up with him and that was hard, but you know, we actually pretty quickly remained friends and which was good. But my husband thought, oh, we can get back together now. You got mm -hmm. it out of your system. We can get back together. I said, sure. No, mm -hmm. no that's not going to Oh, and now we're even. I'm right. sure he very much felt now we're even. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You got yours. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And I, I just was like, how dare you? How dare you? You don't get it. And, you know, because any time that I ever tried to get upset with him, even before all of this had happened, if I got upset with him for not coming home on time or for not being there or for anything at all, his immediate response was to play the victim and to make me feel guilty for ever having feelings. Of course. Yes. No, honey, you're not allowed to have you're any feelings. Allowed. No, you're not allowed to because and your I'm, feelings aren't as, as deep and as, no. you know, important as his. And how dare I question his loyalty to the family and how, yes. and all of these things, you know, and <laughs> for just, and so that, that continued, it was, you know, and so I wasn't allowed to have feelings. I wasn't allowed to process it because he was a changed man now and he was, everything was different and couldn't I see that and just on and on and on. God, a guy buys prostitutes since he was 20 years old and tries to pick up children and now what? His, he is just a bad guy? I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I can so, see how, how casual he would <laughs> behave he, he like totally, this. Totally. And, and so, you know, I really started to really feel this like disgust again with him. Sure. And I, he would try to, he would start sending me explicit love notes. Like he would write all these crazy stories and, and then he would try to touch me and hug me. And I was like, no, I you're, love you're bombing. Nope. He's, he's love, love bombing you. Yeah. hundred percent. And it wasn't working. And so then it was even frustrating him more. Ooh. Yeah. 
And I just felt boundary violations instead of affection. Yeah. And, and I was like, how dare you? You're not, don't touch me. Like Mm -hmm. I do not consent. Like I was very, Mm -hmm. um, and so his response to all of that was to file for divorce. Sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Well, because he, he's the victim here, Amanda. If, <laughs> he's the victim. And a week after he filed for divorce, he also filed the temporary orders to kick me out of the house. He wanted me to move out because he was going to be the primary parent and I was oh. the one work. I had abandoned my family. And oh, yeah, oh. this is a classic narcissist move. Yeah. Uh. And honestly, I was about as mad as I have ever been at him. Because this was another violation. This was this mm-hmm. was an even bigger violation because it was directly connected to me as a mother and my children. Right. And you're going to remove me from the home after after everything I did to support you. Yeah. Like, excuse me. Yep. Um, this is just like if someone is physically violent and then they're the first person to call 911. When that person, if that person tries to fight back and makes contact somehow, even if it's a very small way, they'll call 911 first and say, my wife is beating me up or my partner or whatever. When it was really, it started with them. They were the first person to be the perpetrator. It happens all the time. Yeah. And so he continued with that. And so, and then the temporary orders hearing, which took like six freaking weeks to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the We had actually already purchased another home, in fact, and he had been refusing to move into it. And so the, the judge was like, he, she wants him to move. He needs to move. Like, get, yeah. get out. And that was, but he also spent that entire hearing talking about how much of a horrible mother I was and how I'd been cuckolding him in his own home and how I was out dating. Oh my God. Was, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, you know, he's, he's a changed man and blah, blah, blah. And his treatment provider and his PO both said he was compliant with probation. And so the judge said, because of all of that, that she had no reason to remove any of his overnights and that we, we would have, it would have to be 50, 50 Mm -hmm. for that temporary orders, because I was trying to suggest that he not get overnights at first. Mm -hmm. And they basically said in the state of Colorado, there's no, unless there's a very valid reason not to, they couldn't remove it. Yes. And so we ended that very tentious hearing with 50-50, with, except the schedule that was provided was actually four times back and forth between us a week, which Ooh. was not. Um, it's a lot of liked, transition time for your kiddos. He liked this this idea because then he would see them more often. And, and I was like, this is going to be crazy making, but mm-hmm. there, it was like the last five minutes of a hearing and they're about to kick us out and there wasn't really a nobody had planned for this part. Um, so we started that and he moved out and the kids started going back and forth and pretty quickly their behavior started to get worse and started. Oh, sure. And, you know, obviously divorces are hard on everybody. New transitions are hard on everybody, but they started to become very angry with me. They started to become very angry with me and they would have see things like, you know, why can't you forgive daddy? You know, why can't we be a family again? And, and, and it was like, that's not how this works. But he was telling them that. Right. I Parental alienation. hundred percent. Mm-hmm. And I was the reason that, that, you know, we were breaking up and that. And it's had kids, nothing to do with the daddy's escorts. Nothing at all. No. Um, you know, and so it was, we, we were trying to, the, you know, the next step is in mediation. 
And Mm -hmm. I didn't want to settle parenting time at all. But we did. We finally, after a lot of debate, settled finances, which was very good. Um, I actually had to agree to give him slightly more finances than than not in order to get that settled. But at least we wouldn't be going to court for over it all. Right. Um, He actually tried to say he contributed more. He used a contribution argument to try to say that he should get more than 50-50 because of the amount that he worked. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. But um, regardless, it would have costed more to fight it in court. So I didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, But at that, at the mediation, what we ended up deciding was we needed to get a parental rights evaluator in, in, in part of the case. And every state's different how all of this works, but there's always some way to get a third party in to come make a recommendation to the court after interviews and evaluations and all of that. And so in this, in Colorado, it's called a parental rights evaluator. Um, And he was pissed that we didn't just settle. Um, But I couldn't make a decision. I was very, I was having the hardest time even figuring out what made sense because I knew something wasn't quite right, but I didn't know what he was on probation as a sex offender. He couldn't do all the things and he wanted 50, 50. And you've literally never been in this position before. I mean, how are you supposed to make these decisions when, and now your kids are acting completely differently and having all these behaviors and yeah, that's a lot. And I'm, and I'm feeling attacked and I'm, but at the same time I have, I still have this, this belief that, you know, the kids need their parents and, and so I'm just, I'm struggling and I'm, and I'm, it was actually the mediator that was like, he can feel all of that. And that's because he kept kind of, at this point, he was trying to get me to drop the whole divorce. He wanted to not file for divorce anymore. Because oh, okay. He was trying to get me to throw it out. And I was like, you started this. Right. <laughs> and, and it felt like he was just trying to use the, the court system to bully me. And mm-hmm. it didn't work. He's like, oh, never mind. I don't want to do that anymore. Yep, exactly. Like, no. That It backfired on him. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, we're not, we're not, not getting divorced now. Um, and so eventually, you know, we, we got the parental rights evaluator and she was actually, she did full psych evaluations on both of us. She interviewed everybody we knew, everybody in the whole thing. Um, I'm psychologically normal, believe it or not. <laughs> um, <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. It's all, it's all, it's good to have that confirmation. Yep. Um, um, and he was diagnosed with major depression and anxiety and dependent personality disorder through um, the the psyche valves, which sure. made a lot of sense. He would yeah. have been dependent on all these other people to meet his mental and emotional needs. But what started to happen was he be- started to become dependent on the children to meet his mental and emotional needs. And mm. so he was telling them, you know, adult information in a lot of ways and talking about the court cases and using that to alienate them against me. And it got to the point that they started to become even physically violent, even come to my house. Oh gosh. And screaming and, and I don't want to go to mommy's and you know, the video games and the sugar and all the things, but mommy holds boundaries and yeah. And all of those things were adding to it. And right before the report and the recommendation came out, we had probably the worst transition ever. And it took over multiple hours for them to actually come to my house. They kept running back away. Oh and yeah. I didn't know it at the time, but he actually recorded the whole thing and sent it over to the evaluator, transcripted out, which was fantastic because she got to call him out on every single They time. love it when people do that. Uh, it, it cracks me up because they think that they're going to prove, Amanda, yes. that you are a terrible mom and that these kids don't want to be with you. And what it does is shows them exactly what the problem is, which is him. It's exactly what happened. He was like, she's not warm and welcoming and they don't want to be there anymore. And 
And all it did was prove that he was enabling their behavior. And he, yeah. was and he was telling them, I think she said she counted over like 20 plus times how much he loved them and how yeah. silly they were being and just totally enabling it. Yep. Literally so, rewarding them for acting that way, not being a supportive co-parent and right. trying to support them in coming, you know, going to your house. No, no, no. Rewarding them for their behavior. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Which had been obviously escalating. So this was, yeah. you know, to the point. And so, you know, the report came out and it was, it was really detailed. She did an amazing job, but because of the statutes in Colorado and the, what they have to prove is the recommendation was still essentially 50, 50. Mm-hmm. It was still essentially 50, 50 with a, with a handful of considerations for his probation time. And she did, she suggested that I get slightly more decision-making when it came to school and, ed- and extracurriculars, because we were fighting like those are like crazy. Well, and literally um, he can't take them to school, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Right. And so like, it made sense. Um, and so we said, okay, we'll try. Like we clearly, you know, I have to, I can't, I can't fight this forever. And so yeah. we offered a settlement, which was basically what she suggested. And he ignored the settlement completely. Mm-hmm. He could not handle that. I would be even given slightly more decision-making. That was of really not. And it, the settlement went ignored for over a month. And during that month, my middle child's behavior started to change even more. And he was six at the time, six, almost seven. And he started coming on to me in an almost sexual way. We were, I had picked him up special from school one day and wanted to watch a movie. And it was very special one-on-one time. And he climbs into my lap and tries to like kiss on me. And I'm like, mm-hmm. buddy, what is mm-hmm. going on? And, um, and I could start to feel there was something else happening and I couldn't, you know, the words grooming kept coming up and mm-hmm. you know, that's a terrifying thing to start to even look at. And I was telling my lawyer, like, things are not okay. And we still continue to have difficult transitions back and forth. Like he didn't get what she was telling him in the report. She didn't, he didn't, he didn't get it. And now things are getting worse. And then the bottom drops out again and I'm driving them to school one day and I'm giving a presentation at work or something that day. And my head is totally focused elsewhere. I'm just, and I'm pulling into the school and my son says, sometimes I suck on daddy's fingers. Fingers? Fingers. Okay. Yeah. And I don't even respond. Sure. Like, I I can't respond. I can't have a reaction no. to that. right. Right. And it's just, oh, that's okay. Have a good day at school. Like, <laughs> Right. Right. I sent him on his way and I, like, what do I even do about that yeah where do I start what do I yeah we're in the middle of a high conflict divorce the if you make another accusation against the other party you will be considered to be causing parental alienation Mm -hmm. so I call my lawyer and my lawyer is like you've we we can't just jump we can't just jump to conclusions here we can't do that so I and then I spoke to the, the my kids therapist they had been in therapy and she said you need to ask him to show you you need to ask him to show you what that means and so a couple of weeks later, I did. I asked him to show me and he did. And it's as, as bad as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And so and then I called her back and she said, if he had done that in front of me, I would have had as a mandatory reporter, I would have had to report it. Right. And that was enough for my lawyers to say, OK, you can report it. So also, I, I mean, you just telling her that she's a mandated reporter. Just she so, said that just so you know, in front of her, she didn't she couldn't do that. Um, but. Yeah, that's I'm, that's not how mandated reporter law works in Michigan. That's what I'll that's what I'll say. <laughs> so that's she said without it being in front of her, but that 
that she would have had to report it in that instance. And so from my lawyer's perspective, okay, yes, go ahead and call. Mm -hmm. That's not, you have all of the reasons to do that. Um, So I called Child Protective Services and I made a report and I even, I also informed his probation and all of them as well that I had made a report. Mm -hmm. And then you just wait. This is like the terrifying part with CPS. Like you just you put a report out there and you don't, and we're in the middle of like transitions every, every other day. Yep. And, and, and I don't know what to do. In the state of Michigan, as a CPS worker, we have 30 days to complete yeah. our um, investigation. And we may wait until that 30th day to go and contact the mom the, or the reporting person or anything. Yeah. I mean, that's not how I ran my cases, but I, it does happen. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the next day was actually a him pickup day. And so I, I didn't hear anything from anybody. And like, oh, gosh. You know, I'm sleeping at this point. Like, right. I don't know what's going on. Um, and then the following day, the caseworker calls me and says he wants to interview my son. And and I said, OK, well, I, it's my pickup day. I'll go get him. It's fine. And we, he meets me at my house. And he sits down at the table and he's just started talking and my son is there. And I use the word therapist because that's one he understood and knew as far as a safe person to talk about things. And so I kind of said, this is like another, another therapist, somebody you can talk to. And the CPS worker goes, so your mom told me about the game you play with your dad where you suck on his fingers. Do you still do that? Oh my God. No, no, that is not how you forensically interview a child. It wasn't a forensic interview, obviously. Um, and my son is terrified. He's literally hiding under the dining room table as this is happening. Like yeah, he's certainly he, he won't even come out and talk to the man. He's like, and so my son just is like, no, we don't do that anymore. Like, mm-hmm. and, and so mm-hmm. the, and I'm trying to have this conversation with this caseworker, and I'm like, there's this this history and you know all these things. And the guy's like, well, we're gonna go. We'll go interview dad, and I'll get back to you. And he has no previous history, and dad's gonna deny it. And case closed. So he goes and interviews dad and dad says, well, that was some silly game and, and we stopped it. And it's, it's no big deal. Nothing. And the case was closed. Can anyone think of a like a silly game where you ever want your child to put your fingers in their mouth? Like, no. sorry, I love my kids dearly, but even as no, little, and, little kids, and, I wouldn't let them do that. And and, and like and not. And even if it like it happened in a kid's being silly, it would have never triggered something they would even talk about unless it no. went on for more than a split right. second. Right. And so he dropped None of that it. That makes sense. Probation. And I found out later probation actually did ask him to not see the kids until they polygraphed him. And they polygraphed him, but I later learned the only questions that were asked is the is if he'd ever gone further with anything and whether he'd actually touched them in any way. They didn't actually ask what I reported. Oh, about like, hey, have you had yeah. your child put your fingers yeah. in his mouth? Okay. Yeah, they didn't actually ask those questions. Yeah. They only said, you know, is his is his genitals being touched in a sense. Right. That's all they that's all they were concerned about. Never mind, you know, the fact that how those the, things get the groo- the grooming behavior that happens before the bad thing happens. Yeah. Exactly. Which so but but when I tried to actually contact his probation and his case, um, his therapist, I was told that I was no longer allowed access to any of his files and I couldn't see any of the information. So I didn't actually find that out till months later either. And I was like, he has access to my children and you're, you're telling me I can't actually even see anything right? because he had removed my access from a HIPAA perspective. Uh-huh. I, I couldn't. And I was like, oh. so this, at this point, I feel completely helpless. Completely and utterly helpless. CPS won't do anything. Yeah. My lawyers can't do anything. The evaluators basically still can't do anything. I'm like, what 
what possibly like I'm going to end up sharing custody with a man who's going to abuse my children. Mm-hmm. Who, and, and of course it's, it's not lost on me at this point that this is a man who was arrested for trying to have sex with an 11 and 14 year old. Mm-hmm. Like, hello. It's all this now away. feels very, very real. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden it's all of the red flags that I didn't see for years before right. that in right. my face, all of the, the ways that I had completely been gaslighting myself and, and allowed this to continue coming back in front of me. Like yep. I'm, it's, it's blaring. And, and I also feel like there's nothing I can do about it, that the system is, is not set up to protect anybody. It is, mm-hmm. it's something has to happen in order for them to take it seriously. And even then something big enough has to happen and it has to get caught in a way that, you know, and I'm like, you're basically going to wait until my, my children are sexually abused before they'll even consider it. I always say our system is built to be reactive instead of preventative. It is. It's how the law is written. It's so true. And as a mother who, you know, is going through this, like we were never interviewed. We were never contacted. They never searched our house. There was like, I was completely isolated from anything. During the criminal proceedings, they never searched your house. They never took like, looked. oh my gosh. No, they never searched us. They never, nothing. They, They took what he had in his car and that was it. And then literally made him a deal. Yes. Yes. Wow. I don't even think they actually went through it, truthfully. Yeah. Um, and so I'm at this point where I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like my the drive to put my kids in the car and drive cross borders is so high. Mm-hmm. But obviously that would be considered kidnapping and I would be <laughs> put behind bars. So, right. Like, <laughs> um, and so I'm talking to my therapist at the time. And, you know, and she's like, I don't even know what to tell you. Like the, the system is like, she's like, I'm surprised that nobody's doing anything also. Yeah. And, and then as I'm leaving her office, she goes, you know, have you ever thought about seeing a psychic? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, like a for- like fortune teller is where my mind went. Cause I'm right. completely agnostic, completely, huh? Right. What? Like, I can't believe this woman is saying this to me or this person like, this is, is saying my this to me. Traditional mental health therapist right. asking me this. Yeah. And she's like, and I was like, do you know anybody that's like real? Like, like, yeah. Like, like, is that a, that's a real thing? Yeah. Yeah. I love (laughs) it. Yeah. Yeah. I do. And I just, this is, I I do. And I said, well, I'll try anything at this point. That's really where I was at. I mean, when you're at the point of considering crossing the border. Yeah. I think maybe (laughs) you would try anything right now to avoid that. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. So she sends me the info over and I make an appointment and I walk into this lady's office and, you know, I'm totally don't, you know, there's crystals and deities and all these things everywhere. And, um, and actually when I had called to make the appointment, she answered the phone and and there was an availability and she's usually like months out. And so Uh, she's very like, this happened for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so she starts talking to me about a past life. She says, this is the loudest karmic echo I've seen in, in forever. And oh wow, talking about this past life that she's reading where 500 some years ago in the South of France, um, you know, that we were, we were together and things were okay ish until the kids came. And in that life, his drug of choice was alcohol and he was physically violent. And, you know, I, I tried to protect the kids from him in a lot of ways. And she starts, the way she starts talking to me, all I can hear is everything that I had been telling myself over the last four years about how Mm -hmm. I have no choice and I have to stay. And, 
and you know, and she's like, back then you couldn't even own property or anything like that. And you felt right. like you. How dare you be a woman 500 like, years ago? Exactly. Yeah. Like, and she's like, but the way she's saying it, it's like, I'm hearing all of these things and the reasons that I stayed the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, this lady's in my head. This is this is creepy. I'm listening. And then she starts telling me that um, things started escalating. And in this life, he beat me to death and threw me down the stairs and in front of my children. And she's like, I'm watching it happen. And as she's talking to me, my, my thought in my head is what happened to the kids. And then she says, I know your dying thoughts were who's going to take care of my kids. And I'm like, Oh my God. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, and so like I'm, I'm, and my whole body is revolting and reacting to this. And I'm like this, the fear is in my, in my system in a way. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to understand that the reason I'm so scared of him is because of all of this, because he'd never laid a hand on me in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. And he was- No, he abused you in other ways. He was, exactly. He was mentally and emotionally abusive, but he mm-hmm. never laid a hand on me, but I was terrified of him. I was, I felt like he was always stalking me and always trying to be one step ahead of me. And I was physically afraid of him, but it didn't make sense until all of a sudden I started to understand my body still was holding on to this fear. And she said, you have to get a hold of the fear you have to get a hold of the fear if you're going to stand up to him because you're not 500 years ago. You can own property. You can do things. And the reason your angel sat you down in this chair is so that because you need to make a choice. Mm-hmm. You need to make a choice that you are done with this pattern. You were done with him once and for all. And I was like, I, I did choose. I'm doing all the things. She says, no, you really haven't chosen yet. And she wasn't wrong. There was still a part of me that didn't want any of this, that wanted my family back together, that wanted mm-hmm. to believe that he could get better and get and heal and that none of this was even happening. I was still holding on to some possible outcome there. Mm-hmm. And I was still hoping that it was going to get better some way. And so I was like, okay, I see it. You're right. I'm done. I'm, I'm done. And I stood up and I just let it all go. And I didn't know what I had done energetically in that moment. But I, I hugely, I collapsed a huge pattern and a huge thing for myself. And she says, okay, I can help you now. And she says, like, you have more people that, that want to help. There's more people out there who want to help you. You just need to keep going. You need to keep trying. You know, the, the, she's like, the judge wants to help you. You just have to give her the reasons. And, you know, the evaluator wants to help you, but you've got to keep going. And there's more information and more data out there. She believed he had he had porn in his possession. And she's like, if you can find that, that'll blow up his whole probation. Um, but like, you have to keep going. And I, she also felt from hit, from a him perspective that, you know, he had had lifetimes after lifetimes of abuse himself, but he was not choosing to address it. He had no interest in getting better. And I, I really felt like I needed to hear that on some level. Mm-hmm. That he was, there was no, he was not interested. He was just wanted to dig his hold even deeper. He's not going to learn his lesson in this life. And so I had to let all of that go. And I had to look at, I cannot, I cannot save anybody. I have to focus on me and I have to focus on getting myself out of this situation and by extension, my kids. And so I left that office with a whole new level of resolve. Like, okay, there's more I can do. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to find it. And I actually went back to work. And started talking to some coworkers, and my the first coworker I talked to tells me she has an uncle who works for ICE. Oh, and she said I'm going to call him. She says I don't like any of this. I'm going to call him. <laughs> right. Said, okay. And then they put me in touch with Homeland Security, who puts me and and Homeland Security was appalled that we were never interviewed. The children were never forensically interviewed. Oh yeah. They searched our. They were appalled. Sure. Like what? 
Yep. Um, they also got me in touch with the arresting officer that put the cuffs back on him in 2016. He was a Homeland Security agent who was, who was local to our area, who also got me in touch with the local police department, who they ran the sting operation in conjunction with, who the guy who stood next to him when he put the cuffs on him in 2016. So I got in touch with the actual people who had run the case. Yes, that you had not had access to or even realized that you could have access to prior to this moment. No, I didn't. And so they both vowed to help me, basically. They were like, we want to help you. We, we, we know him. We, we remember him and, yeah. <laughs> and we want to help you. Um, the local police officer actually got the CPS case reopened and they did finally do a forensic interview, but too much time had passed and there was no disclosure. But he sure. was very clear with me. He's like, just because there was no disclosure, all it means is there was no disclosure. It doesn't mean yeah. nothing happened. Yeah, right. And so, but he was really trying. He was. He actually tried to get the probation offer to give him access to his devices because probation technically can get access to any of their devices. Yeah. Probation denied the request and said, wow. no, nope, he's perfectly compliant. We're not going to let you do that. Nope, he's um, playing the game, so we're not going to let you do that. Yeah, yeah probation b- didn't even care that he was in violation of his probation terms and conditions because he paid the probation bill. That's all they cared about. Right, yep. Um, and so... Um, Can, I want to point out in this story really quickly for the listeners too, is that just because, because a lot of times in cases that we cover, Amanda, we hear about shoddy police work, right? And we're, I mean, you know, Megan, Megan's husband is a police officer. Um, I have very dear friends that are police officers and they're damn good officers. And, but sometimes where the problem can happen is when it comes down to the, when it's flipped to the prosecutor, which yes. Megan used to be a prosecutor, as a matter of fact, before she became a judge. And so she would probably, she'll probably giggle when she hears this part that like, there are times where literally once it's in their hands, you know, the, the arresting officers and the investigating officers, they're, their job is done. They can do no more. And yeah. they get very frustrated with the outcome of cases sometimes too, because it doesn't go the way that they want to. And I feel like that is kind of a part of what's happened here too. It is. the When speaking to both of the, both the local police officer and the Homeland Security agent, they were both very upset with how the case was handled on all levels. They were very frustrated that these guys were basically out scot-free. Yeah. They, yeah. they you know, they don't control the the rest of the warrants and the rest of the things that happen. They, right. They That's what I wanted to point out too. They could have asked for a, an, a warrant to search your home and been denied. Yes. So exactly. it, like, that, it's hard for them. Exactly. I mean, all they can't they can't do anything without mm-hmm. the authorization. And yep. so they were very frustrated with how all of it went down. And so then for me to come back around, they were like, "Okay, we'll help you as best we can." Um, and so what I started to do is every person who popped into my head, I would call them every, and ever and I really had this realization that everybody knows somebody, mm-hmm. knows somebody's know somebody. And so I started talking more and, you know, I had people calling caseworkers outside the County to try to get information. I had people, you know, reaching out to anybody they knew. It was actually my mm-hmm. realtor who suggested to, that I call the district attorney myself. And, and I was like, okay. And I called him and he says, I can't actually help you. But what I can do is I can unseal the case file. Oh, yes. Amazing. They they seal it because there's identifiable information on it, Mm -hmm. but if they redact it, it can be unsealed and it is no, it is complete public record at that point. Yep. And so he said, I can do that for you. And I said, absolutely. I have not seen this. Yes. This is four years later. 
Yes. Yeah. Four years later, you get your hands on the case file finally to put the pieces together of what really and happened. Had, and I had to actually ask for it. I had to go right. find somebody willing to unseal it for me. Yes. Yes. I love that you called every person who popped into your head. Like there is a reason why you were that given those thoughts, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I, I had people suggesting that I go up the chain of command and probation. And I, so I would send emails like that. Like I was, Mm -hmm. I would go anywhere and everywhere. And I had this, this drive in me. It was like, I won't fail until I stop. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I cannot live with myself until I know that I have left no stone left unturned. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to, I, whatever it takes. And most of the, most of the things were not fruitful, but the ones that were really were the big ones. Yeah. Were, and, were necessary. And when I saw that case file and I got, actually got to read the transcript between the undercover agent and my, and my husband at the time, I had no more doubts in my mind. And I have, I have completely transcribed it in my book. Okay. Feel like it's important for people to read and it's, yes. it's public record, but yep. I'm not going to lie. I, I'm here for that juicy detail. I cannot wait to get a hand, uh, my hands on your book, which at the end, we will tell everybody exactly where to get it and all of that stuff. Plus Megan and I will talk about it too in future episodes, but yeah. Yes. Uh, but I transcribed it. It was the, it was really, I mean, most of the case files, just everybody's report and the police report, which yeah. was very similar, but that piece really got it. And, you know, I had had three kids with the man. I had been intimate with him for many years. I knew some of his preferences. Sure, sure. When I read that, there was no more question in my mind. Right. And And had you seen that four years ago, you probably would have had the same aha moment of, okay. Yeah. I don't know that for sure, but at the same time, I didn't see it then. And I had no access to it. Yeah, you had no, exactly. You were so... And something that you're saying now that I'm I'm realizing too, is that back then you were so closed off and isolated from people. You weren't talking to people. So no one was hearing your story and giving you guidance and saying, you should call so-and-so you, you know, you could get this information. It wasn't until you opened up to connect with other people that that information started to flow. You don't have to say like, that's all I could just hear judgment. Like I couldn't, it wasn't, oh, you should find out more. Yeah. It was just like, oh, you don't have to say. And I'm like, that's not, I don't know. Yeah. And, and so when I got that, I also started listening to my kids in a different way. I started listening to my son and I started to realize their behavior wasn't their fault. Their behavior mm-hmm. was, you know, a reaction to what was happening in their environments. And there was so much stuff going on with my middle child. I started recording information with him. I found out that, that his dad had been climbing into bed with, in his bed in the middle of the night, mm. his child's bed. Um, you know, I started reading books about keeping bodies safe and private parts private. And I started, you know, and I got to the point where they talk about if anybody shows you pictures of naked people, you know, that that's a red flag. And my son goes, well, it's okay if it's animated, right? Oh, it's got all of this data started to come through. And I yeah. was like, yeah, every time. And we actually tried to file um, a motion to restrict, which would immediately restrict his parenting time. And it didn't work. And like they the the judge basically said, we'll see it all in court when we go to court. And I just had to trust that more had to come through every time something didn't quite work. Okay. And there's more information I need. There's something else here that I Mm -hmm. need. And the, the next set of evaluations that came through the recommendation was that he give him slightly less time because the evaluator was afraid that she suggested supervised time that he would use that entire time to continue to alienate the kids against me and that they would lose both parents. Mm -hmm. And she believed that he was so far she was actually trying to protect me by giving him a little bit of parenting time. 
And but she said that he would not have any decision making because she was also diagnosing him with passive aggressive personality disorder because sure. the level of conflict had escalated even higher. We had mm-hmm. like full on hostage situations between transfers at this point. Wow. Like my PTSD was through the roof. I was having mm-hmm. panic attacks over every single text message. And I mean, not only was I seeing my kids in, you know, be be in danger, but every single interaction with him was now further escalated and it was mm-hmm. always a negotiation and it was just, it was insanity. And so at that point, um, we were ready to go to court. Our, our final court hearing was scheduled and it, I knew that this was going to be the fight of my life. And it's the first time that I really stood up and really said my piece and really said how dangerous I believed he was and how much I didn't know about what happened before and how everything changed. And The evaluator did an amazing job with her reports, and we were able to basically say that with his depression and anxiety and with his personality disorders and with, you know, his clear addiction patterns that he very likely is is grooming the children, even if he's not 100% consciously aware of it. Yeah. And because he didn't believe he was doing anything wrong, you know. And, and so we were able to prove that we were also able to, the only person who qualified as an expert witness was the evaluator herself, ever, his probation officer, the therapist, everybody else was just their opinions because none of them were holding him accountable to anything. Right. Um, and then my, I was able to bring through, even though it was technically hearsay, the judge very much wanted to see where I was at. And so she let all of my evidence through about my state of mind and why I was behaving the way I was behaving. So all of the recordings of my kids all of the the case file, all of that data was able to get through in the case. Oh, wow. The case file and every That's, that's amazing. We got all of it through. Um, and even actually the cop showed up to even certify it as, as accurate and all the things. Wonderful. Um, and so all of that was able to come through. I was able to see my piece and the judge was honestly appalled that he was sleeping with them Yeah, and immediately ordered him on the spot to stop doing that. But she had to go through it all before she made her final order. Right. And um, the final order came through March 3rd, 2020, which was the day before my birthday and two weeks before the pandemic hit. Yeah. um, She basically gave him one last chance. She said he had he had ignored everybody's recommendation for everything before. He had been asked multiple times to give disclosures, to give me access to things, to have other therapy stuff. He ignored all of it. He, He refused to get a job, even though it was a probation terms and conditions. He refused all of those things. And she gave him one last chance. She said, if you do all of these things in six weeks and you sort of, you know, file a certificate of compliance, you can have a little bit of, you know, that every other weekend or whatever that recommendation was. And if you don't, you will only get supervised visitation. And she, she had pulled his parenting time down to like two afternoons a week and basically okay. said, you figure it out and you can have some time or you don't, and you will get none. And mm-hmm. regardless, I will have full decision-making no matter what. Okay. He did not a single thing on that list. I'm sure not. And so the kids had every other week or like two afternoons a week during the beginning of the pandemic. And six weeks later was the last time they ever saw him because he not only didn't exercise his supervised visitation, he's, we have not heard a phone call, a text, anything since the end of April. Wow. Of April, 2020. We're almost three years later. Wow. So the moment he lost, he lost his fight against you. It was never really about the kids and wanting time with the kids. No, it was all about keeping that power and control over you. Mm -hmm. The moment he lost decision-making and the moment that he no longer could be in control of me and my life and use the kids for that. He's gone. Yeah. There's no, there's no interest there for him. 
Oh, that's not, terrible. He has not paid a dime of child support, and I sure. keep it. I don't care. I don't want oh, right. it. Right. Um, he, it's literally been, he like, he vanished. Mm-hmm. How are the kids doing, though? So, I mean, I have you on Facebook, so they seem like they're doing wonderful. <laughs> they're, they are. They're, they're so you know, adorable. It took, time. it took some time, obviously. Sure. You know, the loss of a parent is hard mm-hmm. on anybody, no matter what. I think on some level, I mean, so what nobody knew was the pandemic was about to hit when all yeah. of that happened. They were not. So when they went home from school, they weren't, they were with me. They were never quarantined with him. They were with me full time. And as hard as our relationship was, it actually gave us a huge opportunity to heal because everybody was home full time. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and everything about their life changed that in that month. Yeah. There's no more transitions, all yeah. of those things. Stability. It was, it was a totally different version of stability and opportunity to heal. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple of times where they got upset with me and why won't I let them call daddy? And I had to be every single time it's come up, it's been about his choices. He made the choice. He had the opportunity to be able mm-hmm. to still get to see you guys. And he chose not to knowing the consequences and he still chose not to. And I always made it about his choice. And we've had many conversations at this point as age appropriately as I can sure. about what really happened and, you know, that he has a sickness and mm-hmm. that he doesn't, he doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. And from a mental capacity perspective, he's not capable. And, you know, it's, yes, he knows the difference, but from a child's perspective, they need to understand that he can't tell the difference in that sense. And that he, that's like you, in order to explain manipulation to a five-year-old. Right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, You know, but that he was trying to harm children and that's why he's in trouble. And you know, that he's been on a grown-up timeout and you know, all of those. (laughs) Right. I Um, I think that's great. That's a great idea. Because I really, it was very, very important to me that I be as, open and honest in a way that they can comprehend as I possibly can. And mm-hmm. so I really tried to be transparent with them. One of the things that I realized later on, and part of why I had so much trauma around my own dad being gone is my mom tried to protect me from it all. She tried to protect me sure. from what happened, but it meant that I only got his side of the story, which mm-hmm. was very much against her. And I never want them to wonder about why I did the things I did. I want to talk about it. I want to share with them. I want to really put blame where it's due. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, but I think that shows your kids moving forward, healthy boundaries and whatnot too. I mean, they, that is what the situation is. It's the reality. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it definitely took time, but you know, the other thing in 2020 is I left my corporate job and, I, you know, full-time stayed home mom again, all of a sudden. And I right. realized I didn't have a reason to stay in Colorado anymore either because his family all continued to take his side and continued to believe that he was right about everything. And I was the horrible person and I haven't heard from them in even longer. Oh, wow. Really? So my kids not only lost their father, but they lost grandparents and oh, yeah. all of that too. They were all in that town and I wasn't. And and, or my family wasn't. And so mm-hmm. I realized it was time for me to leave. Yeah. It was time for me to leave. I didn't have a job anymore. I didn't have family support anymore, but the pandemic offered a layer of protection in a lot of ways. And that's amazing. I had, whole, I had a whole level of PTSD to still get through. I was still scared to leave my house in case I might run into somebody for a while. Sure. And, you know, eventually a lot of that subsided. And I, we left Colorado in September of 2021. And, you know, our life looks very different now, you know, very, very, very different. And yes, thankfully so. 
I'm yeah. so glad to hear it. So tell everybody the name of your book, where they can find it. I'm going to link it to in the show notes when this yeah. episode airs. It's The Sex Trafficker's Wife. And you can go to thesextrafficker'swife.com and I will put the links out there. It technically comes out in four days, January 10th, 2023. Yes, we're recording this on January 6th. So yeah, just in four days. So by the time this airs, everyone will be able to purchase it and um, get it, except for my Patreons. They get early access to everything. So they're, gon- they're going to have to wait a couple of days, but uh, everybody else will uh, will already be able to purchase it by the time they hear this. So awesome. and. I I can't wait to read it. I can't wait to he- read more of the nitty gritty details and about your um, journey. So what do you do now? Tell everybody what amazing things yeah. you do now. So in 2020, after all of that all happened, I had this realization, like I created an impossible outcome for myself. I Getting full custody of the kids in the state of Colorado, at least, and in many states at this point is near impossible. Mm-hmm. And the majority of people share custody with their abusers or their children's abusers on some level. They do. Mm -hmm. You know, even though it cost me over $75,000 in lawyers, it wasn't the money that saved me. It was really the mental shift that I had to make and the fact that I would not let anything else be be possible. Mm -hmm. And I recognized how much power I actually had to create my own reality. And this, it really catalyzed a spiritual awakening and it sent me deep in the searching and was like, well, if that lady can talk to the angels, I can too. Mm-hmm. It was really my, how I looked at it. And I was like, I need to learn more. I need to act. There's, there's clearly more out there. There's clearly more to this experience. I need, I need to find it. And so I went deep into learning all I could possibly learn. And I, um, I jumped into quantum healing modalities. I jumped into trying to open up my own intuitive abilities. And I started to recognize I actually was getting a lot of information already. I just didn't trust it. I didn't trust myself. Sure. I didn't know what was real. Yeah. I think a lot of us are are like that right now and in, in that state. Yeah. And just don't, exactly. don't realize it or are afraid it's too woo woo or something to put in, you know, any realization to it. Yeah. Exactly. And so I started realizing that I went through all of this and I got through it and I succeeded in this impossible situation so that I could have not only this compassion and understanding, but I could, I could show people what could be possible in a different Mm -hmm. way. And the people, people are attracted to me when they're in those big traumas and and they see that I've, I've created some things. And, and so what I, I do healing and coaching today, um, and I run different programs to help people access different parts of their consciousness and to, you know, tap into more of who they are and to get to the point where they trust themselves and they can operate from that place first. And, you know, I have huge dreams about what I want to do in the world. I, I have a desire to start a nonprofit that actually can help people who are fighting for custody from their abusers and the children's abusers and help them with that mental, emotional piece and potentially even cash grants if I had enough funding and community and help people feel seen and heard in their stories because I know the isolation that people go through and mm-hmm. the amount of, you know, ways that they get so so stuck and so caught up in all of it. And I want to do, I want to use this story in every way I can possibly can to help people through. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have, I have dreams of speaking engagements and big stages and like the, the system 
the system isn't exactly the problem and people will say that and it's it is broken in a lot of senses because it's so reactive but at the same time we can utilize it if we stop giving it all the power to make every decision for us right right i love that yes exactly we do like you like you really seemed like all of a sudden you walked out of that psychic office like i know that there's more information i need to be the one to gather it and get my shit together and present it through the yes, legal, exactly. you know, way. Exactly. Like this, in the, in the end, the system actually did its job. Yeah. I just have to be the one to provide the information to it. And I think when the system is, when we look at the system as this broken entity, it's because we expect the system be to be the one to protect us. And that's not how it's designed. Right, right. Yep, I love that. And when I, you know, the realization I had fairly recently is that, you know, the system actually did do its job. Like the judge made the final call in the end. And but my lawyers were shocked at how much information we had. I mean, I had a three inch binder full of information and data right. and, you know, like they, they said, we have never had this much. Like you did this, you yes. created this. And so to me, that's the empowering piece. It's not that the system is broken and that we have no choices and we can't fix our lives, that we have all of the power. Mm -hmm. We just have to stop giving it outside of ourselves and really step up and to create something for ourselves. Mm -hmm. With safety and security for ourselves and our children, and and with the types of connection, and and with all of those things that we desire, and really most humans want the same things. We all want to be safe and secure and connected and abundant, and yep. we all want those things. It's just a matter of trusting that you have the power to create those for yourself. And when you do, and once you have, that's a level of safety and security that nobody ever can take away because you know you created it. Right. Right. Well, that is wonderful. And if there, if any of our listeners are interested in that area of your work, mm -hmm. I know you have a different website for that as well. So what is that? That's amandaquickhealing.com. And you can find out all the ways to work with me um, as well. Yep. And I'll link that in the show notes also. You have a beautiful website. It's gorgeous. It's just like, it, it's, it's very visually pleasing to me. I was drawn to it when I was first researching you. I, I loved it. I have, a, I have a lot of fun with it and it honestly changes every few months as I, as I shift in my energy and what I'm doing. Yes. Um, yes. Um, that it's funny that you say that cause I spent all day today. It's really been a couple of weeks in progress of changing crime curious's website and all, all of a sudden I found myself today changing the theme colors from when I started doing this two weeks ago to, to even today. I'm like, nope, these are the colors that I'm feeling today. And I just have a feeling that it's going to, it's going to continue to change just as I, as I need to work through like my color healing and things like that is what it's going to be. <laughs> and it's funny because six months will go by and I'm like, oh, I'm not that person anymore. I need to change this. Yes. Yep. Exactly. I have in my house, I have a lot of neutral colors so that I can change all the accent colors, like the, the pillows and blankets and little cute accent pieces and stuff to pop the color based on what I'm feeling, you know, for that right now I'm really into greens. I'm, okay. I'm very earthy. I'm going through, through an, through an earthy phase right now, <laughs> connecting with, with earth more, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I, uh, it really has sent me on a very, very different journey. You know, I had, yeah. I had worked in IT my whole life and now it's really right. focused on, you know, how do I empower people and how do I, how do I share and how do I, how do I teach people a different way to look at the world? And, and that's yep. what excites me and lights me up today. The social worker in me just loves that about you. <laughs> I, it, isn't it, it's so, it's so funny. The, the journey that we are on here as humans, for sure. It's so 
it's so interesting how it plays out. And I, as terrible as this sounds, I do feel like you're, and this happens a lot for people. It's almost like God is working through you with your terrible trauma and tragedy that you had to go through to help you move on, you know, to go and help others and for others to learn from. And, um, I, I, I'm at this point in where I'm at now here, you know, early 2023, I am grateful for the experience as hard as it was, mm-hmm. it was the hardest thing I've ever been through. I would not be the person I am today without it. Yeah. Yeah. And, yep. you know, I, I, I'm able to forgive in a different way because I can see the bigger picture and I can see how much I not only needed to go through that experience, but I needed to go through it like I did mm-hmm. because I wouldn't have the compassion and understanding for the people who are staying in abusive situations. I wouldn't know how much manipulation and gaslighting people go through. I wouldn't understand it because people who have never been there can't comprehend no, right, it. Right. That's actually exactly why I wanted to have you on to tell your story. Um, you're the first person on our podcast actually to come and tell their story personally. Usually we either interview people and then just say it for them or or whatnot. And so you're the first one that gets to really talk to our audience in this capacity. But I, it was so important to me to have you because I feel like there are so many times when we're covering cases that people just forget. It's so easy to forget about we we're so we're victim focused. Okay. So like if we were telling your husband's story, um, if it, you know, I would have focused on like, if there had been a real 11 and 14 year old, you know, we would have been focused on their life and like what they went through and things like that. And then your husband is the perpetrator. And so often the victim or the perpetrator's families their stories are left untold. Correct. And and it's in and it's a shame and it's something that even since meeting you that I've been tried to tried to be more cognizant of 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 bringing light to how some of the the other victims yes. are in this situation, you know. And in in every murderer case there's a family that is devastated that their loved one went to that extreme, right? Yes. And they they lo- lose that too. I always feel that way in in um when we talk about parents where a, a father killed a mother, those children lost both their father and their mother in that, that moment, you know, and it's just, I, I, I think it's often too easy for us to forget that there is loved ones behind the perpetrators as well. And they suffer also. So it is. And, you know, when we were doing research on marketing for the book and, you know, you look at comparables and things like that, they could not find another wife's story like this. Oh, I bet not. Yeah. That does not surprise me. It doesn't exist. And so when I I was like, I have to tell the wife's story. Yes. Yes. And it was, it was so loud and so important. Like talk about a message I received in 2020. It was like, you, this has to be a book. You have to write it out. This is a huge thing that needs to be out there. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, that's, that's really why I wrote the book and it's not to be told about how brave or whatever. It's really, I want other people to not feel alone. People who are in right. those situations to know they're not alone. People who share custody with their abusers and their children's abusers are not alone. The people who can't afford to have the fight to protect their kids, they're not alone. You know, the people who have been through these horrific things and don't see another way out, like you're yep. not alone. Yep. And anybody who resonates with any part of my story to, re- to really see the possibilities and see the light on the other side, because there is a way through. There really is. Mm-hmm. On some level, there is always a way through. Yep. 
I, oh, I absolutely love that. I, I think that Amanda, truly a lot of reason in your specific situation, why there's not a lot of information is because I think a lot of women would have struggled with the feelings of I wasn't good enough. So he stepped outside of me. Um, or how did I not see it? Like that, those, those human emotions of shame and guilt and all of that stuff. And it's really difficult to talk about those areas of ourself, you know? And I, I feel like you've really done it beautifully here today of just like, yeah, I realize I, I didn't see it and I know that and I can see it now, but like in those moments you don't, you know, and that's okay. That's normal. And it's, it's just so, it's so good of you to do that and bring that to the world so that people can, like you said, not feel alone. And I have a feeling there's going to be so many people reading your book that, don't just want the nitty gritty on like, what was that like? But are like, you know what? My husband committed a crime that I didn't know about too, or my loved one or partner, whatever. And so what does she have to say about that? I think that there's going to be a lot of, of, you know, people who purchase that need that. So that's awesome. I've, I've, I've been sharing more of it in depth on social media as I get prepared for the book launch. And Mm -hmm. I've already had multiple people come reach out to me either in the midst of, or have gone through something similar and thanking me for speaking out because they held so much shame and they hid that piece. You know, they don't want anybody to know about that part of their life. And to me, you know, that's the, that's the problem is, is we hold so much shame and guilt and we didn't, we aren't the ones who did that crime. No, right. We're not, the perpetrators here, but we feel that level of shame and guilt. And I mean, I will tell you, as I've come out with my story, I've definitely had some not so nice comments come, come at me and that's, I don't care. That's not who I'm sharing my story for. Right. Yes, exactly. Oh, trust me. We get hate mail too. I mean, I'm, I mispronounced a town's um, name wrong once in a whole episode and I got the nastiest email about it. I was like, I am sorry. I'm not German. I am terribly sorry. You humans expect perfection all the time when you're putting yourself out there and things out there and you just, you gotta just let that energy go because there, you got no time for it. No, exactly. But the, we need to stop shaming everybody for the yes. choices we make. If you're not in those situations, you have no idea what you would have right. done. It's the judgment. We have got to stop placing judgments on each other as humans. No one, we, we weren't sent to this earth with a guide to how to be human. Okay. Not a single one of us. So I'm sorry, but no one is going to, to do this perfectly. And we are terribly judgmental. We are. We are. And we're then so judgmental of ourselves. And so yes. Releasing that and, yep. and allowing ourselves to take the lessons and learnings and and become better people for it and, and help other people become better people. Like that to me is the point. Yes. Yes. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. And like I said, the link to, links to both of your websites and to your book will be in the show notes. So I um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. And um, if I'm going to have listeners, if you guys have questions for Amanda, send them to me, crimecurious at yahoo.com, and I will um, send them on to her and get them answered for you. So yes, pick up her book most definitely. Okay. All right. Am I missing anything? Uh, no. So, all right. Follow us on social media. Interact with us. We message back. We love it. We, we love do. you guys. We do. Yes, we love you guys. So, and in the meantime, don't forget to keep it curious and keep listening. Bye bye.